Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with the great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, a.k.a. that hat I always wear, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan, today's legendary songwriter, publishing entrepreneur, world-class singer, TV personality, record label executive, community advocate, isn't just the Herb Alpert visiting scholar at Berkeley School of Music, <laughs> but a genreless creator who has garnered 21 BMI awards, including a Songwriter of the Year award back in 2007. Obviously, there's a lot to unpack there, but what else would you expect from a poli-sci major from Duke University turned philanthropist? Don't let this long-winded intro confuse you. A number of our previous guests owe either their starts to her because they wrote with her, signed to her, or just plain old got good advice from her. I know because I'm one of those folks. For someone who lives all the way in Nashville or L.A. or Maine or wherever, this woman's imprint on the industry has been and remains extensive as she continues to welcome all of us into her art house. And the writer is my badass friend, Cara Diaguardi. Okay, I, you almost, I was almost tearing up by that intro. That was so sweet. What can I say? And I'm so proud of you. Uh, well, I, I mean, you just asked where I am, and I'm, I'm in a house that I didn't, I didn't have when we first met. And, and I know I'm just not the only one who, um, uh, who met, met you along their path. And part of that is because... Um, uh, I think unlike a lot of songwriters, you've never looked at somebody who has fewer credits as being less than as a writer. I you know, know. You've, not, you've, you've, you've like, you almost reach for that. Oh my God. I think you have so much to offer. And I learned from every person who I met along the way and especially the young creatives that were com- coming up. I loved being around them because there was a purity to them you know, purity to you. You were in it to write great songs and you weren't jaded and you weren't coming from a place of, I have to have hits and I have to, you know, you may have wanted hits, but you were in that phase where you still loved music and you were doing it for all the right reasons to express, you know, your truth. And I, when I would meet someone coming up, 
I just felt it was so important to tell them, like, don't lose sight of why you're doing this. You know, don't let the industry trap you into thinking you're doing it for them. You know, you're doing, why did you get into it to begin with? I mean, yeah, hits are amazing. Of course, you want to be able to have the money to live on your music. But if your reason for getting up in the morning is so the phone keeps ringing and A&R people kiss your ass and all that stuff, then then you've lost the plot. And right. when when that started happening for me, that I felt like I was a slave to the industry and more creating because it's what the industry needed as opposed to what I wanted to create it or that I even really even wanted to create it all anymore, then I knew it was time to reevaluate. Well, before we get to that, because that's that's an unusual, an unusual, unusually enlightened uh, point of view for a creative. Most I find most creatives get lost in their their ego and their need to create, their need to get have the light shine shown on them. You know how. you know, you were you were raised in a family that isn't full of songwriters. You know, my assumption is that you were raised in a place. I I guess I shouldn't assume anything, my, but you have these values that are unusual for a songwriter, which probably made you a very successful writer. Well, I was raised Catholic, and um. Let's start start there. Where 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 were you raised? Okay, well, I was raised, raised in Westchester, New York. Yeah, which I was in a very conservative family. My father was uh, conservative Republican. My mother too, and um, you know, but not just, he's not just a Republican. He was a congressman, right? Of some, yeah. He was. And you know, it, it was very. My father was really strict. And, um, you know, you didn't speak about sex, you didn't talk about sex, you didn't curse, you went to, you know, you went to church, but yet there was a real hypocrisy because my parents had an awful marriage and there was, you know, a lot of digs at each other and all that stuff. So it was, I, I saw at a young age, the hypocrisy of being Catholic and going to church and, you know, saying, praying to God all week and trying to be a good Catholic. But then during the week, not adhering to that. So at a young age, I was sort of enthralled by the truth of life and how people acted and kind of calling them out on it, which became very difficult as I got older and remains difficult to this day. Um, I Did you to, to secular music growing up or was it all religious music? No. Around the house? So I was a product of top 40. There was nobody in my house who was pushing the boundaries in terms of what we listened to. I didn't listen to the Beatles. I didn't listen to Zeppelin or the Stones. None of that. It was like Doris Day, Frank Sinatra, um, you know, everything kind of from Broadway to, you know, the Rat Pack. And that was kind of my introduction to music. Part of my family had um, been opera singers and my, I had a, and a great aunt who was um, my, my, my grandmother's sister used to be a pianist who played with like Charles Mingus 
um, you know, was married to a trumpet guy. So my mother's side was super creative, super artistic, but they were all super depressed because they were wanting to be musicians, wanting to be, you know, doing that and couldn't make any money from it. And instead we're in like a stone business. So wait, we're in a business, like a stone business. They made a lot of the big buildings in New York city. They built or masonry, you know, high end masonry. So I, um, I grew up with my mother kind of being like, oh, God, music's the worst. People get depressed. They can't make any money. So she was very, very nervous of music. Um, very, very, you know, wanted to make sure that whatever I went into, I could make a good living out of. And and, and if if I wasn't making a good living, um, I'm not even sure that was so important to her as marrying someone who could provide me the life that, you know, I would need. Um, kind of the way that she was with my dad. You know, my mother was um, a pretty woman who was very sweet and was sort of like a country club lady. Um, she was she was a good mom, and, you know, there to drive us to everything and, um, you know, cook for us and all that stuff. But she was definitely not someone who was like, oh, what are your dreams? You can do it. You know, you can make a lot of money for yourself. You can do all this. And my dad was more the achiever who was the you know kid whose family came over on the boat and um he was the first person to go to college and was a partner at arthur anderson first italian at his age to make partner at arthur anderson's who was a real go-getter so my parents had this kind of odd pairing was where it was like my father was the achiever and my mother was um you know going to be provided for by him and she would stay home and take care of the kids. So it was very much that model. And um, that structure. It's so traditional. So traditional. And that is the defining moment for me in my life is that I watched my mother have to ask my father for money at all huh. times and be beholden to him for every decision, anything she wanted. And from that moment, no matter what I did, money was very important. The most was important thing. Like high, junior high and everything. high school? I never oh. asked my... I had, a, I had a job from the time I was 13. Literally. Like, and I worked my ass oh, off. I made my own money. Um, I was entrepreneurial from like, you know, being a little kid, baking cookies, shoveling snow, whatever it was. I needed my own money so that I could have what I wanted in my life, make my own choices. Money to me was the ultimate freedom. It was like, um, I can get what I need and I'll never have to be with someone that I don't want to be with because I don't need to be with them. I'll be fine on my own. And that was something that colors my entire career. Um, beyond the fact that when I was little and I had this talent for singing, um, my dad would kind of, we'd go somewhere and he'd be like, oh, now my daughter's going to sing. And I would like almost throw up my food because I was had such stage fright. And he would call me out on it because it would like, he loved to show off what I could do. And it was kind of, you know, um, it just made me feel really uncomfortable as a kid. And he did it a lot to the point that at around maybe seven, eight, nine, um, I just stopped singing. I was like, that's my gift and I'm going to use it the way I want to use it. So I don't sing anymore. Um, and that was a really 
hard decision looking back on it because I always sort of thought like I could have gone farther as an artist, but I shut that side of me down um, because it was mine. As an adult, as an adult, you look back and say, had you not yeah. shut it off nine years old, that that would have, that that could have changed your yeah. trajectory. Because then I became, then I, then I sort of, at that moment, I was like, um, what's everyone around me doing? That's what I'm going to be. But I had to shut it down because it could have become my dad, I think, you know, and I love him, but he would have been a horrible dad. <laughs> it would have been really bad. He would have pushed me and pushed me and pushed me into it. And, and it would have been, I just know, I just knew as a kid, it wasn't, it wasn't right. You know, I would have been a showpiece and, um, you know, he would be like, oh, we'll get her on Broadway. got to take her here. My mother would be like, no, 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 no. Music's not for her. That's, you know, you can't make any money. It's a horrible living. You meet drug addicts. You know, it was like this sort of thing. And my dad was like, no, she has talent. We've got to, you know. And so it was, a, it was friction for my parents. It was. Um, I mean, what an interesting time when you think that your, your mom's side comes through jazz. And when you mentioned Mingus in that whole era of jazz that it was, was filled with drugs, was filled with, you know. My mom was concerned. Like, I don't blame her. I mean, I think she was legitimately scared. Yeah. And that's the opposite of what you'd expect if, if the side of the family that came through music, you would assume that that would be the one that would try to push you to do music. But it's the other side that found mm -hmm. music exotic that was really pushing you. Were you singing through, did you end up singing even to yourself in the shower? Did you All literally gut it? All yeah. the time. It's heard melodies, he heard so things good. in my head as a kid. Um, was obsessed with music. Just would sing all the time. All the time. When did um, you start, did you perform in high school or did no. you, and then just say, no, this is. I was like, you know, I'm going to law school. I'm going to go to Duke. I'm going to be like everyone. I had two best friends growing up who were like really, really smart. One went to Duke with me. The other went to UVA and Harvard and they were, they were smarter than me, but I was scrappy. Um, and their mother was like one of the first women to make law review. So there were so many issues in my family that I just went and lived there. And I fell into their kind of culture, which was, I am woman, hear me roar. Like I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go to the best schools and my mom's like a, you know, um, amazing lawyer. And, and so I, um, you really moved away from your fam your, your family. Well, no, I lived there, but I wasn't, I, I sort of wasn't getting whatever I needed, you know? Uh. Um, and I knew that from an early age that as much as I love my mom, I had like big dreams. I wanted to be something, you know, but I wanted to be it because I wanted to be it, not because somebody else wanted it for me. And, um, you know, as a kid, I think I just, I took what I was feeling and I channeled it into being like these people next to me that I admired, you know, that went for big goals and were independent. And, you know, my two best friends, mom, she made her own money. She had her own house. She did everything on her own terms. And I looked, you know, after the whole kind of thing with feeling like I was being controlled in my house 
to some degree, I looked over there and thought, you know what? I want to be like that. You're a kid. You don't know. You know, you don't, you don't know your options. I didn't even know at the time that there was a, there were songwriters. I just knew that my family felt very traditional in terms of the housewife and the provider and that that didn't feel authentic to me. I was never going to be beholden to somebody and asking them for money or not having a say in things that just didn't feel right to me. So I looked, you know, over what was going on in my best friend's house. And I said, well, this feels more like me. This is like empowered and I can have a say in my life. You went to Duke, which is, you know, obviously a top school in the country kind of place. And you're, you end up getting, you know, majoring in poli sci, you're still so far from music. Yeah, but it was, it was the right, you know, it's funny. Sometimes finding out what you don't want to do is the path to finding out what you do want to do. So I went to the absolute wrong school. Like Duke was a disaster for me. I mean, I was so depressed. I I can't even tell you there was nothing about that school that I loved. And everybody who went to Duke was like, oh, it's the best place. You're going to love it. It's amazing. And I got there and the kids were so entitled. It was so Southern. There was so much racism. Um, it was so conservative because even though I grew up Republican, I was never a Republican. Um, you know, I've always been an independent, even in my, my voting choices. Like I vote for who I feel, you know, is, is the best candidate. Um, obviously this year we know who we've got as our president elect is the best candidate, you know? So, um, did your dad struggle with the fact that you were not conservative? Oh, I think. Yeah. But, you know, once I got successful, people struggled less with me. They were like, okay, she's not like a drug addict who's, you know, I think that was the big concern. It was like, you know, it was this world of like, if they're this, then they've got to be this. There was there was no thinking that you could actually be in music. You could have some morals. You could um, actually experiment with certain drugs and not be a drug addict. It was just—it was just this kind of all-or-nothing thinking. I mean, I don't want—I don't want to uh, go fast forward too far, but we once had a session. It was just you and me, and we—and I, I worked in your house in LA, and it was um, at the time it was. It was a very, it was a very large house. We were in one room and, and the lights were only on in that room. And you told me, you said, yeah, but your dad taught you that, uh, you don't, you know, why keep the lights on in the other room? You're just paying, you're just giving somebody else money. So that would have been their, their take on it. Cause my grandmother was always turning the lights off. But the thing with that house is, um, first of all, I called it the rich prison. And I sold it probably quickly after I I had bought this really amazing old property uh, before I got married. And I did not realize that the moment I touched it, all of these things had to be done. So the, I had already demoed part of it and the, the city was like, Oh, you have to do a whole new driveway up the hill. And I was like, and it was like some astronomical amount of money. So I had to renovate the house so that I could get my money back out of it, which meant I had to make it really big and really massive, which was totally not what I wanted. 
Um, well, and the other part of of you know, and, and these were notes that I had for later on, but I think this will be good to lead into the music that that you started to release. But you know, when you would go to your business partner's house, Steve Finford's house, you would stay in like in you would you wouldn't stay in a fancy hotel. You like recently or yeah. I know I about. stayed in his little like by the garage, the room by the garage. Yeah, you would choose the 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 room in the house that is that felt most like an apartment because that would inspire you to continue to write from a place that's authentic to people who listen to music, which is again one of those unusually unique, enlightened points of view that most writers don't they don't execute that well. You know, they want to start enjoying the success and you continue to push back and be like, no, even though money is a focus for you, it's more for stability than it is for material. And I think that that's the uniqueness in needing money. You're a good interviewer, Ross. Very astute. Um, So, you know, we had this big joke when I first started, you know, my early 30s when I had had some success. Um, I had bought as an, as an investment, this place in New York city. And it was, it was really nice, but I wasn't living in New York city. I was living in LA. So my best friend was in this like really awesome condo with my car. And I had like a $20 a day rolly down window car living in like a not great apartment. And, um, that was exactly where I needed to be because I think, when you become, when you start worrying about your, your possessions, you know, which you become a slave to because everything takes time and many money and energy, it drains all that creative energy. And that, and, and at that moment you have to be centering on yourself, what you're feeling, what you're going through. So you can create that and it can affect someone on the other side. So um, I really only bought nice things that I lived in after I started <laughs> to not write anymore. Um, and I really think there's a correlation to it. I could be crazy, but, um, as being the seed starter, like the person who brings the idea into the room, you know, there was a, a point in time when I could really listen to an artist's story and help them craft that, but it wasn't me coming into the room saying, let's write this today, you know? So, um, and I think that's why, you know, sometimes you you have these artists you love and, and then they get really, you know, rich and famous and it's like, they've lost a sense of the vulnerability that was in the other records. And, you know, I think you have to be really beholden to that purity and that magic that you have when you're trying to express who you are early on. That's not to say you can't have an amazing career also surrounding yourself with the right creatives who are up and coming and aspiring because they bring such light and inspiration into the room. And then you can use the craft side of what you do. For me, once I hit that point where I couldn't, where I had to rely on somebody else in the room, it just felt, it didn't feel right to me. And so I never really wrote, I don't really write with people I sign and I don't, um, I only get involved in something if I feel I really have something that can add to it because it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel, it feels a little bit like, oh, I'm trying to encroach on what they're doing, you know? So that's just personal to me. You know, I think there are many, many writers out there that are absolutely essential for these young 
uh, creatives coming up that do amazing stuff in the room to, to realize the hit potential of a song. But I never wrote for that. I wrote because I had so much shit inside of me that I needed to get out from years of not being truthful to myself about who I was. It was well let's let's go to that because you know you leave Duke. Yeah. Um, well I got really so I was telling you I got I got really sick at Duke. Like I developed an eating disorder. I was really fucked up. And I was like, this is this is all wrong. Whatever I'm doing is all wrong. My body's telling me it's wrong. I the people around me are telling me it's wrong. I don't want to be like everyone here because I feel like everyone here is doing what they think they should be doing as opposed to what they want to be doing. You know, Oh, daddy has a law practice. I'm going to be a lawyer, you know, and that's all fine. And that's a great path for people. And I'm not judging them. I'm just saying for me, I was like, I'm being a hypocrite. If I just follow along what I think I'm supposed to do, because you know, everyone around me that growing up was such an a type achiever and was going to be a lawyer or a doctor or all these things. And it's not who I am. So I just woke up one day and was like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a singer. My parents were like, what? (laughs) They were like, are you crazy? How did you know you were going to be a singer if you hadn't performed in front of anybody? Because by that time, now that I was kind of like not feeling great at Duke, I started singing again to myself and I was I was obsessed with Mariah Carey like obsessed with her just the way she could reach all those notes and that she wrote her own songs and she didn't necessarily have an instrument the fact that she could just write to a track or write and I I started feeling like well if she can do music and you know and at the time I didn't even wasn't even thinking about writing but I just thought I love singing. I'm, I'm singing again. And, and for me, it was a release of pain and of joy and of all those things. Like the, the, my instrument was my voice. It was truly how I expressed what I was feeling. And I hadn't used it in so many years. And I think that that's why I got so sick. I, I was denying a part of who I was. Um, so where did you go? I mean, to express those feelings, you could have chosen at that point, New York would have been obvious because you were, you know, you grew up near New York, but. Well, I had to graduate. I thought it was really important to graduate because if I couldn't make it in music, at least I'd have a great education and that, right. that would, you know, allow me to, to have a B plan. So I stayed in school until I, and then I graduated and I, um, went home and announced to my parents that I was going to be in this garage band called grandma trips. Don't ask. They hired me as like the backup singer. Um, and I had to do all the songs they wrote. And then I worked like three waitressing jobs. Um, and one day I was singing and this like Italian guy heard me singing. He was like, Oh, you should meet my partner. My partner's a manager. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll meet him, you know? So I met him and he's like, I'm going to manage you. And of course I'm like, I don't know anything about managing. I don't know anything about, you know, what's going on. I just know that I'm sorry. sorry Shut that up. No, it's just. Gonna. We need to get you a a cooler ringtone. Is that so bad or what? I mean, that is really pathetic. I mean, it really, it, just, it pretty much shows, you know, we just need, we, we can choose cooler ones. Or we should just take like one of your hits so that way every time you have to have it like thrown in your face. 
Just a reminder. Now, th- by the way, if you come to my house, there isn't one sign that I do music. There isn't yeah. one award. There isn't one. I mean, I'm a wacko. What can I tell you? I'm a weirdo. I've like, I've had to trick myself into health my whole life. Like I've had to go like, nope, you can't have that. Cause if you have that, that's going to lead to this. And then you're going to be in a bad place. So no, you can't do that. Um, yep, that fine I, I think- line. We've, we've talked about that a lot about, you know, writers who have their accolades on walls and writers who have, who choose to have nothing, but there's very, you know, it's not like, I don't know that many people who have, one one of their plaques, the plaque of those song they love most. It's not like that. It's like an all or nothing thing. And I think they both have value, but there's there's no question that one mm-hmm. when you step away from looking at, you know, your your accolades, it's a lot easier to just be human. Well, don't you sort of have to have some accolades on your wall? I mean, come on, you are doing this podcast, like it's, <laughs> well, it doesn't. You know, I, you know it, I feel comfortable knowing that you have those up there. I'm like, okay, Ross is Ross is really a, a he's a big songwriter and he's done great things, and I'm I'm glad. Like, I, I know I, for sure. I, I, just, have, yeah. <laughs> I like I like having them up because I think that those years of those struggles where I had like to me this is a reminder of you. Don't worry, you're not going back to that time. No. More than it is looking at it as like, wow, look at what you've done. It's more, you're safe. You know? By the way, you're safe. Definitely safe. (laughs) Okay, so so um, you're now a singer in a garage band. You meet a a random Italian dude who says (laughs) that he's your manager. This sounds like this is going to weird. It's getting, yeah. So then what happens is... um, You know, I get this call from somebody who was from Duke and she was living in Connecticut working for her, I don't know if it was her, her uncle and she pissed him off and got fired and she had no place to live. So she wanted to come live with me. And at this, at this point in my life, I have a lot of tragic things going on. Now I've decided I want to be in music, but my parents are getting divorced. My mother has cancer. So it's a very, very rough time to have a friend come and stay with me. But um, I convinced my parents to let her come. And and, um, she got a job offer at Billboard magazine and was going to turn it down. And I was like, whoa, whoa, did you say Billboard magazine? She's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, will you give them my name? Because then I can get my parents off my back because I'll have a job and it'll be in music. I can learn everything about the music industry. I can do my band stuff on the side, get out of this waitressing stuff. And, you know, it would just be amazing. And I got the job. And that's when I started learning everything about the music business and what I needed to do to become an artist. I needed to put a demo tape together. I needed to get songs and, you know, the whole thing was that like, I was like 15 pounds overweight. I was living with my parents. I had a bad haircut and I couldn't get anyone to give me songs. So I was like, fuck it. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to write. Let's go. So at the time, you know, that I'd met this Italian guy was like kind of managing me. He's like, all right, I know this guy in the Bronx. His name is Dave and he does R and B music and he'd be willing to write with you. And I was like, let's go. So I get in a car, go down to the Bronx. There's like a, this Rottweiler or something. He lived with his girlfriend who was a stripper. I mean, this is like all new to me. I've like never met 
I've, I've probably met like one gay person up to this point and strippers and stuff like that. I don't know, but I'm like, let's do it. So we go there and, you know, to this day, I never saw the girl. I just saw her nails kind of come around the, the door and she'd be like, Dave, like I never saw her. She was just this like character in the house with the Rottweiler. Um, and so I went in there and he was like, um, you know, I think he was, yeah, he was Puerto Rican, great guy. Awesome. Um, and incredible piano player. And I just started writing. He'd like touch the keys. And I was like, la, 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 like started singing. And the songs were fucking awful. Like so bad. They weren't about me. They were about like what a guy that I liked would be feeling as opposed to what I was feeling. But God bless them. Uh, God bless Dave. He was like so encouraging and kept having me back. And I mean, Did I have cuts that we know, or was he just like a guy who wrote songs? He, later on, he had some stuff go on, definitely. But this was the very beginning of his career. And you were only, you know, at this point, you're, you didn't really then start writing until you were in your mid-20s. Yeah. And I went to places that I, I'd never, I mean, when I tell you throughout my career, the shit that I did coming from where I came from was like, I, I, one, I remember one particular producer and I don't want to name names, but um, we were working in Miami on a pretty big album and I stayed at his house and I went to get cereal one morning and I opened that up and a gun fell on me. I was like, what in the, I mean, I had to, the, he got arrested. I had to get the bails bonds, the bail bonds. And men, I don't even know how, still don't even know. He had his baby mama coming. They'd have attacks and fights. And I mean, I had never seen any of this and it was awesome. It was fucking real. And I loved it. It was like my awakening to the world at large. What I had seen up until that point was privileged and white. And, you know, there was nothing gritty, nothing real about it. And I was on a journey. I wanted to be surrounded by people who were exactly what they said they were and, and didn't disguise it to make everyone else feel like they were better. These were people who were surviving and, you know, I loved that. It was, it was authentic and I needed it for my soul. And I thank every single one of them that put up with me. Cause I'm sure I was like, what's going on? Like, this is crazy. But yet I loved it. I wouldn't have. How did you feel about being a, you know, I'm, I'm sure that this question will evolve a little bit as we go on, but how did it feel being a, a woman traveling to these places versus being a man in an industry that still is, you know, mostly men, you know, did you have any issues or are people generally speaking respectful? Uh, no, I had a lot of issues, a lot, a lot of issues. Um, there, where I went, it was like, there were not women in these places. I worked with all men, all genres, all expectations. I mean, I had some real serious issues along the way. One, one very high profile thing that if I had, and I did report it, but if I had decided to pursue it, I just figured I would have been known as the girl who sued blah, 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 as opposed to going where I knew I could go. And that right. for me was more important. It was like, I, I need to show myself who I am and where I can go. Cause that's the only way for me to for me to get my esteem, you know, my self-esteem and, and to feel free of, 
of everything else that I, you know, came from. So did that, did that happen as you as an artist or I guess, you know, no, no, always as a writer. And it was when I was starting out, once I had some success, nobody fucked with me. And I also, I also learned how to create this sort of character who was really tough and had a mouth on her and was feisty. And like people, like people didn't want to deal with me because they were like, Oh, she's such a bitch. Like, you know, she's whatever it was. And I milked it because it was like this stand back. You do not want to come near me because I had to. Well, I mean, this is a, a loaded question, but why is it that people say, that she's a bitch when at least my experience from uh, when I, when we first met, you were known as somebody who's like a boss lady. I don't know that I remember people saying that she's a bitch. Oh, but you were, first of all, well, okay. Like, remember now, what, what are we 15 years in age difference? I, you know, by the time I met you, it was a different story. Like I was more respected and people, you know, knew my work in the beginning. I was like, wait, why are you getting production only when I'm doing all the vocals and sitting here with the artist producing everything? And you're, you're out in a, you know, whatever you are doing, you know, it could be a strip club, could be a, you know, on another call trying to get work. And I'm sitting here for hours I've, I've given you the template for the record and, you know, and that sort of stuff was, oh, you, you know, she's, she's crazy. She's a bitch. She's, you know, and I was like, oh, okay. So I'll start my own thing. You know, I'll start my own publishing company. Cause if I'm going to write all the songs in terms of the melody and the lyric and then pitch it and get it cut, maybe I should do it with people that are extremely talented that um, can leverage my name or what's going on with me. And then they'll be in the room and they can write with, whoever we're in the room with by themselves and they'll have a career. You hustled, you know, to get to, you have this manager, you're going into these oh, sessions. Yeah. Now he, we, we've been skipping around. So that manager was so, so important in me, like writing songs. Yeah. And you, you know, like I'm just going back and forth and I, and I think people can follow because generally speaking, they can follow you, me. (laughs) (laughs) That's my job right now. So we're back, we're back into this, you know, you've just been writing with these guys on the, this come up and you have this manager is putting you into sessions or telling you to write, but though all that, that, that exists, there are, you know, thousands of people who are at that level. That's a different thing than, you know, you first start getting cuts uh, what would appear to be, you know, four years into you writing and hustling through this. But then it starts to become almost immediately overnight, pretty big names, Ricky Martin and Kylie Minogue and stuff like that. So it, it goes from, I'm going to be a songwriter or I'm going to be an artist to at the time working with really like the biggest artist on the planet. Okay. So yeah. So the timeline is like writing songs, 23, 22. Um, wanted to be an artist and, um, was, you know, put together a demo tape, but nobody wanted to sign me. And then people started wanting songs of mine. Uh, I'd done my first stuff with this DJ guy. And, um, one of the first cuts was, um, uh, it was, uh, not, of course I can't remember her name. Oh my gosh, this is horrible. Okay, well, I can't remember her name, but anyway, it was it was a t- <laughs> Billy. Wait, I can't remember. Uh, uh, um, uh, Billy Piper. It was a Billy Piper was one of them, but it was um, Martine McCutcheon. Her name was uh, Martine McCutcheon. I had my first UK hit because no one would sign me, but then somebody wanted that song, 
So then I was like, well, whoa, what's this thing? Like I can sell my songs. This is interesting. I like this. Um, and again, I couldn't go to LA or I couldn't move because my mom was sick and I was taking care of her. So what I would do is I'd wake up in the morning, um, go to the studio to do my demo tape before work, work a full-time job till 5.30 and then go to the studio at night and then like be taking care of my mom. So I had no life for years. I didn't go out. I didn't have a social life. Like I had a boyfriend and friends, but I was never out partying. They were all young and doing that. And I did that for probably five years straight. Um, and during that time is when people, I wasn't getting signed, but people started saying, oh, maybe we could use this song. And then when I was like 27, I got signed to a singles deal at MCA. And um, around that time, Larry Flick, who worked at Billboard with me, who was a huge supporter, I'd given him my demo tape and, he, and said that it was a friend of mine who had done it. And he was like, this girl's really good. And I was like, no, it's me. And he's looking at me and my like easy spirit, you know, pumps running around the office going, there's no way it's you, but it was me. And so he gave my demo tape to Paula Abdul. And she was like, I really want to work with this girl, which was like amazing. And then the song we wrote for her went on to be Kylie Minogue's Spinning Around. And that's when I was like. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm going to peace out on my job. I'm going to, I had saved like working at Billboard. They had moved me into sales and I think I'd saved like $150,000 when I was 27 and I left. How did your family feel at that point? My mom had unfortunately died, which was horrible. I had a horror. It was my mom was sick for seven years. And it was, I also think because, um, I, there wasn't a question that I wouldn't have stayed with my mom, but it definitely was, you know, hard to kind of go all in as an artist. Um, and I didn't want to be leaving her. So, um, she wasn't alive when I did that. And my dad, the relationship was a little fractured because my dad and my parents had gotten divorced and I was kind of left with dealing with my mom and my brother who was definitely depressed. And I mean, my family was a real mess. So it was a very, very hard time. And, um, so when people will say to me, they'll be like, it was like one day no one knew of you. And then everybody knew of you. It was like, oh no, I've been working my ass off for years. I've been hustling. Like I had three jobs. I had a sick mother. I had so much shit going on. And 
when I got my break with, with the things that happened to create that break, I paid my 10,000 hours, you know, I'd paid my dues. Um, you may not have seen it, but believe me, I was doing it. And I wasn't ready necessarily, which is so interesting because I didn't get kind of the mentoring. Um, I mean, I got the, I didn't get the lyric and melodic mentoring. You know, I, I work, always worked with producers because I was trying to be an artist and they loved that I could sing, but I look back at my early records and I mean, I don't, I, I look at my records and I think, you know, I may have had hits, but I, I, I don't think I was a, a lyrical, had lyrical prowess. I think that what I was was someone who was just stating my truth and that really reacted with people. How did it feel to have other people cutting your songs while you were trying to be an artist? It felt like I don't have to be a bank teller. It's kind of awesome. Like, that's what it felt like. It felt like someone's going to pay money. So I don't have to like have a real job and I can really do this music thing and make some money out of it. Oh my God, I love them. Where are they? Can I meet them? And it was the right choice for me. I am impatient. I don't have a lot of like, I can't do things for too, too long. I get bored. So writing songs was perfect. It was like, ah, I'm done with that. Move on to the next one. Today, what do I feel like? What do I want to write about? Like to be an artist and sing the same song over and over and over and to have that schedule of getting up and like having to have hair and makeup and all these things that control you. I was miserable doing anything like that. It would, I, I need, I need freedom more than I need it to be. In the beginning, you know, Martine McCutcheon and Ricky Martin and Kylie Minogue and Jessica Simpson, you know, you start, you can tell that clearly it goes from this person's like a, this person's a songwriter who's now in the game. But you start when once you have in a number of songs with someone like Enrique, and these are all these people in their you know their prime. Um, is there a moment where you start to think? Do you ever start throttling back, or do you know? Do you start thinking that this is easy? You know, because once you start having the, that kind of those kinds of hits, you know, are, you're not really worried, or those kinds of songs or cuts. You know, my assumption is that you weren't as worried about survival at that point. Or do you think that that once that's in your head, the survival sort of uh, gene that it never stopped? I think that it's a great question. I think I think I knew that I was going to be okay. Like I was going to do this music thing and it was going to be okay. But I really... And I would say this to all, anyone who's listening to this, that's, you know, going to go on to have their moment. It's like, I didn't have any respect for what I was doing. I didn't acknowledge it within myself. Um, I didn't cherish it. I didn't sit back and go like, this is so cool. I just was like, what's next? What's next? What's next? Keep going, keep going. Like, and um, because it finally came and like from maybe early thirties to, you know, whether it was 28, 29, when I had my first hit till maybe, you know, I had songs on the radio up until a few years ago. Right. Um, I just never really, I mean, as I got older, I did, but I never appreciated, like I never sat in awe and said like, Oh my God, 
that was, it, it worked like that actually went on the radio, you know? Um, and I hope that everyone takes a moment to understand that that is a huge feat. It is so hard to have a big record and don't let it pass you by, by thinking that you got to do your next one and your next one and stay relevant because people are going to try to replace you and da, 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 da. It's like, that's what the industry tells you. But to have a record that people sing to at a concert that touches their lives, that are, that's at their wedding, that's at their, whatever it is, like what a gift and what an amazing thing. And like, don't lose sight of that because you think that the industry needs to have 10 more from you. If you could go back to any era of you at that point and, and drop in and say, Hey, relax for a second. This is, this is an incredible moment. Is it when you win songwriter of the year? I mean, I, we could go through each song, but it would take forever because I think you literally have like 300 cuts at least. And then it's, you know, before, before we get to publishing and stuff like that, you, you know, all the BMI awards, winning songwriter of the year kind of thing. When in all this, if you could go back at one time and say, Hey, you know, either from your perspective, say, thank you for working as hard as you are. Or if you were to go back and say, Hey, slow down. Yeah. I would say it was 2004, 2005, 2006. I mean, I, I, the way before, before, you know, uh, rich girl for Gwen Stefani and and pieces of me for Ashley yeah, Simpson. Right around, no, that's about that time, right? That's that's about when you'd say like, okay, relax is when you were when you were succeeding, and I don't want to say succeeding most, but like when you were having so many you know hits in a row. That's that's the era. Yeah, I would have said like, and that's when I was kind of starting up my publishing company, and or I'd had my publishing company, but it started really. You know, I think at one point we were like number one independent publisher or something. I, I can't even remember, but it was, and I just don't even, I just never stopped to be like, wow, I did this, you know, to appreciate that in myself. I think I've always been super hard on myself and super like my HR, I, there's no HR department in my brain. Like it's a horrible place to work. Like there's no, there was no vacation back then. There was no, it was like, you know, the way I, the way I worked myself during those years, like, no, terrible. HR department needs when you're much better. When your songs start coming out and you're in your thirties, cause you know, I have a similar timeline as far as my first cuts going like late twenties into thirties and stuff like that, that it changes the, um, the appreciation and also puts sort of a sometimes when you start having success really young, you kind of feel like it, it, there's an entitlement attached to it. But when it happens later and you've already had, you know, a whole other degree in something, you know, you might have uh you just have a different appreciation for the opportunities exactly. and it's hard, it's hard to turn those opportunities down. It is. And you, and you, you don't enjoy it as much, you know, and and the other thing is that I didn't have, it's funny to say this, but I didn't have a lot of women that I, I didn't have a tribe of women that were like my people. Mm-hmm. Well, it was like maybe one or two, but none of the like women songwriters really, they were, they were almost, they kept their distance from me or maybe they thought I kept my distance from them, but I didn't. 
you know, so there wasn't that tribe of today. It feels much more like people root for each other a lot. Or, or maybe that's fake. I'm not sure, but no. I think I think that that's because of a certain generation of writers who are allowed, who choose to do that. Yeah, and and also I think it's much harder to be a giant asshole right now in the business because people call you out. It's not to say that they they don't exist, but people are you know people are louder now um, when they don't like someone. And there was a a long time where people in the industry could hide because they were such they were such assholes, but people just Right. What are you going to do? Who? Wh- where are you going to go to 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 let people know? Don't go. Don't work with that person. That person's a bad person. And now there are certain people who have a scarlet letter situation where you know not to work with them because they. You still. Some people are still going to take the opportunity, but for the most part, we can we can easily name five to ten people right. that that. In, in, in another generation would still be at the top of their game, but it's much harder for them now because people yeah. warn each other. That's right. So I, I think actually, I actually think one thing I, I did do, um, I may not have called out some of the bad sexual behavior because um, in the beginning, I, I wanted to go further and I didn't want that to be a cloud over my head. But when I saw bad behavior in terms of just being a total prick, I was very vocal about that very early on for some of the people who came, who went down in the last five to six years, because I wanted to warn other people about it. Yeah. Um, uh, well, we'll continue that part. Um, offline. Cause I think that that's fascinating. I think it's part of our responsibility and, you know, as people who are, you know, who've been in the industry for a bit to look out for the next generation and and to to have each other's back because, yeah, certainly the generation before you and the generation before them like didn't have anybody, you know, and and we just need to continue to to help each other out. But I want to get into the the publishing. You know, a lot of people say you, you got to get into this. You know, you got to start. Uh, you got to start uh, publishing. You got to start a record company. You got to start a label. And most people are not prepared for it and shouldn't be doing that. But some people just have an inherent ability to find talent. Explain why you started Art House, assuming that that's the first publishing company that you started, unless there was one before that. No, but uh, Art House was was formed maybe twenty years ago. So, so is that the is that's the first that's the first publishing company for you though that was always so um, the amount of writers that you had on Art House and uh, without going through all of them your your reach as a writer is so vast because of the publishing part of your career not just you as a writer I guess what makes you a good publisher and. You know, why don't we talk about some of the people you've signed? You know what I, you know what I really um, thought was important as a publisher was at the time when I was writing and since my own copyrights went through my publishing company, that I would put songs on a reel to pitch. And sometimes I wouldn't even put like the names of it on there because if I were going to put my own there, I didn't want it to eclipse my writers. 
So I really believed in let's put them all on here and see which one, which one works. Um, I have always felt a greater sense of joy when someone I believed in had a record more than my own. I, I don't, I can't explain it to you. I just, I am like, it, it's just the best feeling in the world when someone you believe in who you've watched for five years, um, not get any recognition. And then finally, all of a sudden the industry kind of, they ca- catches up to them and they're like, this is the best person ever in the world. And I, I, to me, that is the best feeling in the world. And that joy with that joy comes what I think is a purity that is important to have in publishing. And the purity is that you get involved with it because you truly believe that there are talented people out there. I mean, in my, in my case, more talented than I believe I am the ones that I sign. That's what I strive to sign. Um, and that they realize their dreams and that that music goes on to ultimately the most important thing, affect people in the world and change in the world. And that to me is why publishing and music is so important. It's not just about like publisher of the year, song of the year, this, that, and the other thing. It's about like the kid who is in his bedroom during a pandemic who's found this song that keeps him alive, you know, that keeps him from not going down, you know, a rabbit hole. Like, if we're not in touch with that, what the hell are we doing? Like, that has to be something that is, you know, we strive for. We strive for putting that into the universe. Okay, I understand we have to make money, we have to do all those things. But if that, I've always found that if you do things for the right reasons, the money comes. If you do things to honor yourself, like for me, like I, I, I needed to find out who I was and music was my vehicle. I also wanted to have some money, but foremost, I explored through my music who I was. And in that, that set me free and the money came after. Like the money was going to happen. I I guess for you know, for some of these questions, uh, we'll, we'll go to this next segment, which is what would John Bellion ask Cara Diaguardian and the writer is? And he asked you a few questions. Oh, wow. Okay. He says, um, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, John. Okay. Let's see. John Bellion. One, you know, like he's obviously one of our joint favorite human writers that, uh, that you've signed. So, uh, he asked a few questions. He said, when did you recognize your ability to target talent at its early stages? That's one question. And then also, you know, being able to see that person's potential. When did you realize that you were as good at finding other people as you are a writer? Mm. It's more just being in awe of someone's talent. And part of it is like, wow, if my old self had met you when I was your age, like I would have died to have written with you. And it's lines. Like the thing that Ingrid Anderson, John Bellion have in common, like, you know, two people I I represent right now is they have this way of lyrically saying things that's so different. Like I, I fell in love with Ingrid. She had this one song and she's, she hates when I tell the story, but the lyric was, it happened with a spark. The one you lit to light your way 
away from my foolish heart. You didn't see it start, but I caught fire. That was a line in a song from Berkeley. And I, and I kept, you know, I was like, uh, I was, you know, when I first started teaching and there were so many students and names and I had, you know, I'm terrible with names. Um, but you know, and I would get her name wrong, Ingrid Andrus or whatever, but I, I was obsessed with that line, with the writer who wrote that line. And to me, oh, that's all I needed to know. One line, same thing with John. Loneliness comes in waves, 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 and melody and just his sonics and all that. But just something that makes you stop doing whatever you're doing and go, what was that? That's me. That's the factor. Something different, something unique, someone who's willing to push the envelope, you know, and not just stay, not just give me a song they think I want to hear, but show me their truth and be bold in it. That's for me always been the most important thing. And I don't care about metrics. I could care less. I could care less if you don't show me metrics. I'm not interested. I'm not. When you're you're an indie publisher, that's a a thing that is essential for for any of us who are signing people. Is like if if you want to go into. By the time you get to metrics mattering, that person's going to a publisher that's going to spend a way out spend you. So you have to find like if you're an a smaller publisher, um, you have to build it by finding people who are quality that you you can help develop. Oh yeah, you know, because there's no otherwise you'll you'll always lose to oh, oh. somebody who's willing to flash uh, an extra zero. Like you'll just never win in that. But remember, like there weren't really metrics when I signed John. Same thing with Ingrid. I mean, we're going back years. Like this is just believing in developing people. So, you know, but today metrics are, you know, and back when, I mean, you know, whether it was Greg Wells or, you know, Ari Levine, like there were no metrics back then. I just went off of a basic, you've got something, like it's, there's something, it's, it's a gut and it's a gut and it's a belief. Like to be a, I think to be a publisher, you just have to believe. You have to believe when they don't believe. You have to believe harder and stronger for them. Now, that's not to say you can make somebody want something more than they want it themselves. I mean, that you can want it more than they want it. But I knew, you know, most of the people I signed wanted it. And then I've made some mistakes, you know, where they didn't, where they were so talented, but they didn't. I wanted it more than they did. And that is tragic and it breaks my heart. I think a lot of writers still assume that it's going to happen to them. No. And that has never been a thing that's ever happened. It, there, there are a number of writers we know that probably had one cut that mattered, but they assume that those opportunities would keep coming Mm-mm. to them. And, and you can't really describe that you know, go get them attitude. When do you know to, 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 and this is a, a dark question, but when do you know to drop an artist? When, you know, when an artist, you, when you're a publisher and you're signing people and you do another term and another term, at what point do you just say, listen, this isn't working out until you figure out what you want? Well, when they've recouped, you look at them and you go like, 
what's, is, is this worth the bandwidth? You know, like I'm pulling my weight, you're not pulling your weight and I'm not sure you want it anymore. And I'd rather like, I don't have, I don't have that many slots. I'm going to give a slot to someone who really wants it. Yeah. And that's, you know, uh, that's the price of doing business. You know, you, you lose, you lose out on a few people you, you, you believed in, you bet on them and it doesn't work out, but also there's a whole psychology involved. It's not just talent. It's like who can really get beat up and still stand up in the morning and want to go through it. You know, I, what I used to sign, you know, the, I used to be all talent. Now I'm like, mm. <laughs> like I'd love to be all talent. Cause I've made that mistake many times where I kind of thought, you know, they were so talented, but maybe really super sensitive or super, you know, I can only write when the moon is in line with the sun or, you know, the, you know what I mean? Um, not that that's going to happen, but, um, and then you go, okay, like I've, I'm seeing a pattern here. There has to be as much work ethic. There could be less talent and more work ethic. There's a, um, I, I'm just going to list a couple of the songs that Art House, because we can go through your songs, but the one of the, Art House is a, is a separate thing. But Art House had, you know, obviously with the Smeezingtons in their prime, there was a lot of stuff in there, but you know, nothing on you, just the way you are, grenade and forget you. And then Casey Livingston, Club Can't Handle Me Right Now and Heart Attack for Demi Lovato and Want to Want Me for Derulo and obviously Trumpets and Monster and Beautiful Now, All Time Low and Memories and Good Things Fall Apart, Graveyard, all those things with John Bellion, you know, Florida Georgia Line Simple, more hearts than mine, Ingrid, you know, so many songs and you can keep going on. You know, there are publishers who have survived off of much fewer songs than that. Do you celebrate your successes as a publisher the same way you should be that you, when you say that you would have told younger you to celebrate these moments as a writer, do you take the moments now to celebrate as a publisher? Definitely more so now because I want to celebrate alongside the writers, you know, and this part of art house is, is so much more meaningful because like before those, before the Smeezing Tins, um, or before Ari Levine, you know, the first maybe, I don't know, six or seven years, really art house was based more on what I did, you know? So, and me bringing someone in the room and writing those songs. So whether it was like, you know, undo it for Carrie or, you know, that I wrote with Marty Fredrickson, but I was more a part of those and I didn't really celebrate those as much. And now I celebrate this way more because I'm not a part of it. I'm not in those songs. And I want to call up my writers and be like, see, awesome. You did it. Always knew you could do it, you know, um, and this is awesome. So I feel like I do. I celebrate alongside them because I just, I want them to have that moment. And, you know, it's like being a mom. You can't tell somebody to have something like they're going to learn their own way. Right. Um, I mean, do you celebrate it? Um, I, I definitely, um, I'm glad I have a, a, a wife who reminds me to celebrate things. Yeah, so you know. I think that really helps to um, 
to recognize, you know, and it's like, I have, I have a song coming out in a couple of weeks with one of, one of our writers signed to unknown music. And I'm so excited to, for it, for mm-hmm. him more than I, than I am for me. I mean, I have, I have, you know, I have songs that have come out. I'm more excited for him and the artists. Both of them I'm really excited for, for different reasons. And I, and for me, it's like, I'm doing my job. But for them, it's like a, it's like a chance to celebrate differently. So I, I do see that that it it has different meaning. It's not to say that I don't enjoy having you know uh, songs that keep the lights on, but it's nice to you know it's nice to celebrate other people. I feel like I'd be amiss if I didn't ask a little bit about you know if you were the last judge on one of these shows that actually did something. And what I mean is that a, a lot of the the whole talent show on television stuff became where the judges were more in a way more famous than than the than the singers. So no one looked at the singers anymore. They only looked at the judges. Mm-hmm. You put yourself in a position of being a TV personality. Um that must have been that's so unusual. This is long before Songland, you know, which is doing its thing now. And it's and it really I feel like that was the last season where things where you had it where if you won a show, you actually had a chance to succeed. And now if you win one of the shows, like it's really hard to be successful because there's no apparatus to actually break an artist who wins American Idol or The Voice. You know, but at that point, it was the last time where they actually had judges who could actually help the singers. I just want to know, you know, and we don't have to dwell on it too long, but you know, that's a you've had a a bit of a career working in some random TV shows. I mean, I think you were in The Simpsons and probably oh, Sesame Street. Yeah, I mean, so let yeah, I mean, here's the thing with 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 American Idol. I mean. At the at the at that point in the show, they wanted to, you know, change up the chemistry. I have no idea why, because it it was perfect. I mean, everybody loved it the way it was, and I think they thought, let's not bring in a celebrity because if we bring in a celebrity, it could be it could really mess it up to a point where it's it, maybe it's disruptive. So let's find someone inside the industry. I mean, and there weren't a lot of women, to be you know honest, that were in the industry then it was like me, Diane Warren and maybe Linda Perry or, you know, and for whatever reason they chose me and I had no idea what I was getting into. I mean, this was not a music show. This was a TV show. This was like, this was about being a character, having a one liner, you know, being a shtick. And, and I, I, at that point, like it's been, you know, my whole 15 years just trying to be me and like be true to myself. So the moment I got on that show, it was like, well, I'm just going to, you know, first of all, I had tremendous stage fright to begin with, like being on a live TV show in front of that many people. Oh, I would be sick for days before the show, like just wake up in the middle of the night, like freaking out. Oh my God, I got to go on the show. Did the other judges too, or is it just you? Did no, everybody? Just me, because they were all loved and revered, and I was like, you know, I spoke too long. The producers would be like, "You're too verbose. You've got to cut it down." 
you know, one-liners, you got to be more positive. You know, they would like prep me. And I was like, eh, no, I, I'm sorry. Like, I can't say that's great. So in the, in the first, you know, year, I was sort of a little bit more under their thumb. And then finally I was like, I'm just, I, this isn't working out. Like I'm, I'm not really being as truthful as I need to be or being authentic. So it was a really, really tough, um, tough couple of years. I mean, the second year was a lot easier, but I think Simon originally just wanted me to fight with Paula. You know, he knew I knew her and he thought like maybe we could have some cat fights and it would be funny. And I was just never going to do that. That was just not me. I wasn't going to go after another woman or, you know, uh, no, I wasn't going to compromise who I was for good TV. Never. And like, even after that, they would, when I, when I, when I left Idol, you know, even dancing with the stars was like, Oh, can you be, you know, I was like, I'm not a TV person. That's not who I am. You know, I'm not going to just do it to be famous. Like that just seems so corny. I mean, it's such <laughs> you know a what different, I mean? like, Oh, different than, uh, it's so different than being in a small recording studio with, you know, whatever it is with, with one other writer or, you know, whatever it just is. It's such a different, there's different expectations. It's totally different. And it's about, you know, TV ratings. It's a totally different thing. It's not about music. And, and by the way, I think it was a life defining moment for me because I realized how much I loved listening to young talent and, being part of their journey and mentoring. And that kind of came from idol um, because, you know, back in the industry, someone would come into your office and you'd be like, Oh, great. Okay. I'll call your lawyer. You never had to really say anything, but now it was like, no, I had to say something. I had to give them feedback and I wanted to give them a lot more feedback. I wanted to mentor them, but that wasn't allowed, but it started making me think about, you know, wow, if you could really influence people when they're younger and mentor them think of how how much better a process it would be for them and that has informed me you know in most of my career now where i'm signing such young people and where you know i'm teaching at berkeley college of music and where i have a nonprofit that you know if youth are going to give of their time and talent then any money raised goes back to youth who are in need like to me there's nothing more exciting than than young people and their power and they have a lot of power and they have a lot to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. We're going to go to our, cause I feel like you and I could talk forever. Commercial though. break. Commercial break. We're going to go to our last segment, which is a five for five. I'm going to list five things and you just tell me what comes off the top of your head. Oh boy. Right. Let's start with your husband, Mike. Soulmate. Oh my God, he can hear me. Are you there, Mike? Can you hear me? Oh my God, he can totally hear me. Um, Cozy, Hmm. loves me unconditionally and gets me. And fucking funny as hell. Funniest guy ever. Gets my kook and like totally the right person to marry for me to have married. Lucky as hell to have met him. Did you hear me, Mike? Curious. See if I think he did hear it. Mike, you got a lot of compliments. Okay. So, you know what? We're in Nashville and 
he's moving furniture, but you know what? I said to him the other day, I was like, you know what? I just think you're the best person. He goes, oh, come on. And when, whenever we're like in Nashville, cause my son's not with him. I'm always like, you're just, I'm just so lucky I met. And he's like, Oh, I'm going to throw up. What's going on. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. We're not coming to Nashville anymore. Okay. How about Steve Finfer? Like, you're, oh, let's, let's explain. You can explain who he is. Uh, so Steve Finfer is my partner for 20 years. Like the smartest guy and actually the most misunderstood person. He's actually has an incredible heart and is loyal and fights for our roster. He's a hard ass negotiator, but he's a softy under it. And he's been the greatest partner I could have totally misunderstood person. And I'm lucky to have him in my life too. We've, we've gone to battle together. He's been there for me for years and he's like a brother to me. Let's go art house. Art house. Ooh. Just an ever changing organism. It feels like it's like one year it's this one year. It's that one, one minute we have this one minute we do it's up and down and all over the place. And it's full of joy and sorrow. And it's just whatever everybody's feeling um, is inside this ha- this house at any time. You know, it's like it, it. Everybody's songs, like all their their lives, their sounds, their their trajectory, their journey, all under one house. It's it's like an amazing village. Let's go with your dad. Hmm. I wouldn't be where I am today without him. Mm. He taught me how to work really hard. And whatever I didn't get from him made me, made me who I am today. So while I wish we had had a more like the cozy relationship I have with my, my husband, where it's just, I can share all my feelings and I would love to have had, a more close relationship with him and to have been able to tell him how I felt and to be heard. He really couldn't listen to me. He couldn't let me have a feeling. And, um, but that made me chase my own feelings and have to figure out who I was and what I felt. Did he get to see your success at all? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your mom. Hmm. I wish I could have given her that house on the water. She was a sweet woman. And I have real sorrow about losing her early. So it's a, uh, life is tough. That's why when you have your moments, you got to hold on to them, but it's very sad to lose a parent early and especially now that I have a child who's just like me and I realize how difficult I was as a child, like how that must've been really hard on her when she didn't have, you know, she was raising both of us by ourselves because my dad was working all the time. And I feel like I was, wasn't always kind to her. Um, I was in my own pain and I took it out on her. And um, 
I have a lot of regret there, but I do believe she's with me. And I think that my career really took off in an amazing way when she passed. And I, I believe she was part of that. I'm sure she'd be very proud of you. It'd be hard not to be. Uh, I, you know, I, thank you for doing this. Uh, I know we've talked about you doing this before, and this is this is fun to have you on. Uh, you know, you've gotten Icon Awards and humanitarian awards and all the you know awards that mean more than just this song got played the most in this particular year uh and i think that's just says a lot about your career and you know the fact that i can that you have uh you signed a couple of writers who've been on this show says a lot about how you've been able to compartmentalize you as a writer, you as a publisher, and the fact that, you know, your family is as important as they are to you. And, um, you know, you and I have talked a lot about all the things that come after a music career. doesn't mean you're not still working in the music industry. You know, there's so many different parts to this life and you always choose to live in such a because you choose to live in your way, it ends up being a role model for a lot of us who want to not necessarily live where at the end all you saw were the same four dark walls and two speakers. You know, you, you've you've lived in other states and other cities. You've you're you've you know you teach classes, you teach writers, you do a lot of things that are bigger than you. And I just admire that you you opened a lot of doors for me. I I, I never understood some of the parts of the business. We sat down for one meal, and afterwards, I remember you, you know, recommending me for some consultancy things. And I'm just you you've looked out for me, and I'm not even one of your writers, so I can't imagine for all those people who were fortunate enough to sign to to you early on, you know. I, it makes sense why why they like you so much. So well, I'm, I'm really, really honored to be on this because it's become such a great vehicle for people to understand what being a songwriter is, what it takes, and hear other people's stories. And you are somebody who, you know, is doing the same thing with making sure that you're doing more than just writing. You do a lot of things for young writers you do you know whether it's being on the board you're on and i and that's why i think i've always really um loved you because you see that there's more out there and i think when you're tapping into just you know the last thing we can talk about is like you know don't be afraid to move past being a songwriter you know there may be a day when you don't want to write anymore or you've said everything you want to say or you want to write and not be in the in be, be competitive you know where you're being looked at for another hit and you want to take a you want to do something different with your life. You know, creativity can be so many different things. And I think that's, that's what I've had to come to terms with is that I don't really want to write songs anymore. I, there, it's not joy for me. There's no joy in it for me. It just, it feels like, Oh, I don't know if this is good enough. And it, it's my creativity is kind of exhausted that vehicle. I love now doing other things and I've allowed myself to do it. And I have to remind myself that I have the right to be something different at any given day. I love it. Well, thank you. There you go. Thank you, Ross. Love you, dude. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silverstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com